Well, hello, John. <laughs> hey, David, how are you? <laughs> I am well. We're going to talk about Jesus again in Luke's gospel, which is always going to get us excited. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I have to say, David, I'm loving your early morning coffee voice. It's marvellous. So for our, for our listeners, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I've got a leisurely afternoon of chatting with you, but you're up very, very early to be uh, <laughs> recording with me before your, your serious day starts. So yeah, uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you're sounding... You're sounding rather, rather husky, so marvellous. Yeah, <laughs> well, the joys of international podcasting. Huh? And, and I'm in shock, I'm in shock. I always like to give broad updates about the weather here in, in Calgary, <laughs> but I, I was out last night with my run group and we were running in short sleeves and it was 17 degrees. And as Come I on. walked downstairs to make my coffee before coming to record with you, I looked outside to a blanket of snow. <laughs> so we've, we've gone from plus 17 to snow overnight. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So Last time we were talking about Jesus and his baptism and his genealogy and, and all of the sort of layers of things that might be happening in that. And then speaking of, of whiplash, Luke takes us in Luke chapter 4 from, from essentially... <laughs> this story of of Jesus and his genealogy and then bang we're in the desert and there's mm. this showdown between Jesus yeah. and the devil the forces of evil are, are taking him on it's quite it's quite a shift it is and in fact there's a beautiful sort of chapter 3 chapter 4 gear change really cuz at the end of chapter 2 we see Jesus disappearing back to Nazareth as a 12 year old and Luke tells us that he returned to Nazareth and was obedient to his parents and he grew in wisdom, stature, favour with God, favour with men. And then we have 18 years of silence till chapter 3, verse 21, and Jesus reappears. And it it's this um, incredible sort of explosive, dynamic moment of Father, Holy Spirit, Son interacting in the Lucan text. And then you get this sort of almost gentle genealogy moment and then we hit overdrive we are we are like off and running and it's moving very very fast from from what seemed to be a gentle start we're now on the move so it does feel like a big as you read the end of chapter three into chapter four it does feel like we uh we've had a significant gear shift we are accelerating now into the story quite profoundly as we come to read the story just now, I do wonder whether some of the narrative that we talked about in the last episode about the sort of Jesus's status, and I talked a little bit about this sort of the potential honor and reputation establishment going on. I, I wonder if that, as as foreigners to the text, we come from a different context and time, that piece might help us see how Luke's almost presenting Jesus facing these various challenges, almost showing to his audience that Jesus is jumping the various challenges presented to him. He's, he's as a young man, arguing well with the rabbis in the temple. Then he's got God's honor ascribed to him at baptism. He's got this good genealogy that affirms that. And now we kind of move up to sort of level three test. <laughs> now yeah. we're now we're going to head out into the wilderness and and take on the forces of evil. It's there's potentially a connection, a way to look at the story that Luke is is defending Jesus to us in a very ancient style. Yeah, totally, and it helps our helps our listeners because one of our dangers, of course, which we we keep 
going on about on and on and on is, but it's still worth repeating, is that you jump into chapter four. So when you're doing Mm. your daily devotions, you jump into chapter four, you forget what happened in chapter three, you forget the connecting ideas in chapter two, and then you sort of read this as a vacuumized idea. Mm. Oh, this is Jesus, like, just being tested, right? But if you've then disconnected these moments of testing from the previous trajectory, then mm. then we lose something of the richness of what is going on, not just on the surface. And of course, there is an on the surface understanding of this, but then there is a there's an under the surface world, which which I, I hope all of our listeners are are getting to really truly appreciate that that the Bible is written at one level. There's a story here in chapter four of Jesus being tested, but then there are layers underneath this. And if we will dig a little, there's just some powerful, powerful ideas. And I think Luke mm. is picking that up. I think he's he's doing both. So without knowing those layers, you can just read the story and appreciate it. With mm. knowing those layers, it becomes a very, very rich, multicolored text that helps mm. us really appreciate Jesus even more, I think. And, and so that cue there perhaps lets us jump into reading the text. So, John, do you want me to read this? I'll jump in at Luke chapter 4 and and read the story for us. Do it, do it. Let's do it then. So we're at Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read from verses 1 through to 13. And headed in my Bible, the temptation of Jesus. Mm. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Wow. Come on, that's outstanding, isn't it? Incredible. And of course, I I think it's 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 worth just a little mention, easily missed, but but worth a little mention is that I love how Doctor Luke puts it. He says he says that where for forty days he was tempted, mm. and and of course we're we're only going to be dealing with three of those temptations because mm. there are the three were given, but there seems to be a definite sense in the text, David, that uh, Jesus was really put through the ringer mm-hmm. throughout the 40 days. It's not just he's having 40 days in the, in the wilderness and there's an occasional test. Dr. Yes. Luke seems to be suggesting this is a pretty relentless experience. 
And with that, we would imagine, we would hook mm. in into the writer to the Hebrews that Jesus was tempted on every conceivable level as mm. a human, physically, could we say emotionally, could we even say sexually and, it, uh, and spiritually, mm. Jesus is put through a phenomenal test. Mm. And it's easy, I think when we're rushing to the three temptations, and they're incredible, but when we're rushing to the three, we tend to sort of, if we're not careful, only think of three when the implication mm. is he was tested in all things as we are. Yes. As the writer to the Hebrew says, yes, without sin. Is, is that is that worth a wee note? Just because it's easy to miss that as you rush to mm. the rush to the three. I think that there's de- that definitely aligns with Christian tradition and reading of the Bible, doesn't it? That mm. that there's this this depth of the experience of Jesus. I mean, I even think when I Luke throws in that line, he was famished. At one level, kind of obvious, it was a 40-day fast. It's quite likely he was famished <laughs> in that process. But I think even that speaks to the humanity of Jesus. It speaks to the reality of this situation. And and if if it wasn't for that, these are these lines, I've mentioned this in this series before, but these little lines... They, he was famished. It actually, is so important within church history's reflection on yeah. Jesus. Is For Jesus sure. fully human? And here, Luke points out a very obvious feature, which of course has has cascading impact. He is very hungry. What are humans like if they're hungry? Well, mm-hmm. it's bad enough dealing with any temptation, but add hunger to that, and your your processing is down. Your your temper is up. Your emotions are challenged. Your exhaustion, all these sort of things, are are functionally changed by you being hungry. Um, and so, I think that is worth noting that Jesus is testing, is testing, uh, is testing as a human. It's Jesus is mm. testing an experience in the human condition. For me, I think that Luke is setting something up in this gospel that's going to be so important for him when he gets to Acts, that Jesus does what he does through the power of the Spirit. And, yes. and, and that's going to be so important because by the time we get to Acts, Luke is going to show us how the early church does what it does through the power of the Spirit. So there's, I think Luke is writing this aware of there's lessons to be taught here, and I need to make sure that I tell these stories properly so that you can learn these lessons that are that are brilliant. in play. Well, I think that's brilliant. And, and of course, this, this little expression of his humanity is sandwiched between the words of the Father, you are my son, an affirmation of mm. his deity, and of course, as we're about to lean into now, a, a challenge to that deity, if you are mm. the son. And and so Luke seems to be absolutely affirming Jesus is God, no question. No one is no one is challenging that. But these this temptation moment, this season is showing him to be fully human. And it's it's a a striking little experiential reflection, if I may, David, sort mm-hmm. of on this. I know we must be careful not to impose our experience onto the text. I, I've sort of had a long tradition of fasting and was encouraged mm-hmm. to, to fast as even as a teenager. And I remember a number of years ago when I was moving from one church to another, I I went on a 40-day fast. I did a 40-day fast, just water. And an amazing thing happened, and I've done, I had done previous long fasts. The longest fast I'd done before that was 21 days. 
Mm. And I remember sort of the experience of your body stops craving food. You you actually stop feeling hungry. Mm. And the challenge at that point is psychological. So there's a there's a point first three, four days where you're like ravenous. You could eat anything mm. that's moving, you're that hungry. But then your body reaches a point where it stops craving uh, and you're no longer hungry in in the classic mm. sense. And it's about your brain. Your brain wants to eat because that's what you normally do at six o'clock in the evening. And that's what you normally mm. do at eight o'clock in the morning. And you're really fighting your brain. But here's what I've discovered, David, which was amazing in my 40-day fast, was that I reached a point at the towards the end of the fast where it was like, and I can only describe it this way to you. It was like my body started to wake up. It was an amazing experience where I started to feel hungry again. Now, whether that's something, maybe one of our listeners who's a medical practitioner can explain that to us, but whether that's a survival instinct or whether that's something going on in the body, but but I started to get hungry again towards the end of the fast. And whether that was like the alarm system of my body going, hey, something's going wrong, you need to start eating again. But but for, for whole chunks of that fast, I wasn't hungry. But towards the end of the fast, if I can say, I was hallucinating that chicken burgers were flying down the corridor and all sorts of stuff, weird stuff was going on. Let me tell you, I could smell people cooking from 25 miles away by the end of that fast. Let me tell you, my senses were through the roof on that stuff. And I, I, when I read that text as a boy, I just thought, well, that's obvious. He's hungry. When I went through that fast myself, I went, oh, hold on a minute. This is right at the end of a of a tipping point moment. There is a physical tipping point moment here. There's a mm. spiritual dynamic moment here. There's something else here where even in the body of Jesus, he's now being awakened to be hungry again. And that actually makes you profoundly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's when you're starting to feel hungry again that the idea of eating really, really makes you vulnerable. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and I think there's an extra layer of vulnerability in the hungry reference, not just that he's mm. hungry, but that he's reaching a tipping point moment physically. Mm. And uh, and I think maybe maybe it's Dr. Luke who who helps us with that, being a doctor, of course. But but I I, I just thought that was a, a really nice little experiential reflection that maybe adds a wee bit of weight to the text mm. that isn't immediately obvious or is obvious in a different way. I'm sure that you can relate deeply then to if you were at the end of your 40 days flash as a good Irish boy, the option <laughs> of a fresh <laughs> loaf of bread. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It, uh, just, 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 I can smell it uh, being yes. cooked right now. Absolutely, it's, that would be. And, and of course, one of the, just one of the little physical challenges, of course, is if you fasted for that long, you you cannot go back to routine eating immediately. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. everything shrinks, your esophagus shrinks, your intestines shrink, your bowels, shr- mm-hmm. everything shrinks. Your body mm-hmm. is literally eating itself to survive. Mm-hmm. So if you suddenly stuck a piece of bread in your mouth, you would, you'd probably kill yourself. I mean, you, or you'd yes. do serious damage to your intestines if you swallowed a piece of bread. So yes. yeah. there's a there's a sort of an obvious hunger temptation here, but there's also, actually, this is a moment of physical danger for Jesus. It probably would have G- taken Jesus as long to recover his normal eating as he mm. fasted. Yes. So it's probably yeah. a six-week recovery after a six-week fast. Yeah. And... Fascinating, though, that the devil's first 
recorded temptation to Jesus that yeah. he was he was famished. If you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. Absolutely, and, and we'll yeah. come into that temptation. Yeah, we will. That we connection, will. that connection is really worth Amazing. just just the, the 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 sort of intense humanity of that temptation. Mm. <laughs> let's just go. Let's just go right at the source of just the human desire to be alive. It's quite. It's quite something. But Amazing. but he's there, John, because the Holy Spirit led him there to be tempted. Yeah. That's that's an interesting sort of. There's a lot going on in a sentence like that. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan where he was baptized, and he's led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for forty days. He was he was tested. Actually, the the, the Greek yeah, word yeah. perhaps is is better referenced that way. Is tested by mm. the devil, which which mm. actually I think the astute the, the the sort of an attentive listener, Luke's just dropped a couple of things there for you that that you might want to pick up on and 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 just see some parallels in, isn't he? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And of course, a good a good Torah reader would would absolutely hear the echo of the journey of his own nation, the parallels between Jesus and the journey of Israel, for example, are quite striking, literally led by the Lord towards the land of promise and purpose. And I think we get an echo of that in some of the temptations here. I think the the, the motif, you know, of Jesus moving from and to and what he goes through to get that is just an unmissable parallel there. 40 days, 40 years approximately. The fact that there were moments of even testing and trial for the people of God, some of which they passed and many of which they failed. Jesus seems to be the one led by God towards promise to supersede uh, and to be the completion and fulfillment of what has been before. Mm-hmm. So there is, and, and and I would say this as well, I, I, I think jumping backwards to Torah and then moving forwards to us, I, I think there would be there would be a section of the Christian church would be deeply uncomfortable with a theology that suggests the Holy Spirit leads us to testing. There is a section of of our Christian world that would that would want to see our experience only in terms of positivity, mm. prosperity, and progress, and everything everything should simply fall into our hands. And here's Jesus, God in flesh himself, being led by the Spirit, not even just accidentally wandering into this scenario. (laughs) Got lost in the desert. Absolutely. (laughs) Took the wrong turn somewhere. This is Jesus, the image of being taken by the hand by the Holy Spirit and literally Mm -hmm. led into a, a, a place without people to be tested. So it's an uncomfortable phrase, but yet one in which we're being called to trust the providential care of God and the purpose of God, that it's ultimately leading us towards something greater than ourselves. And I mm. think Jesus' experience represents that. The the parallel that I was thinking of as well is, is Deuteronomy chapter 8 and yeah. verse 2. And I mean, and it's quite interesting to read it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which appears to be the translation that Luke uses. Luke is, Luke, like all of his references to the Old Testament, scholars will point out that he seems to be using the Greek translation yep. pretty verbatim. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 is fascinating to read alongside Luke 4 verse 1 and 2 because it says in Deuteronomy, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you 
in order to know what was in your heart and whether or not you would keep his commands. Mm. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, again, advertising for a future episode in, in, in a few <laughs> days' time about, about that first temptation. But, but it's very hard, I think, given we know that Luke knows Torah very, very well. He, he, the, these first five books of the Old Testament, he riffs on on several occasions. Hmm. But the language of, of the Lord leading the language of yep. wilderness, the language of yep. 40 years, the am- language of being tested in order to know what's in your heart. And then the fact that, that Jesus in a, is going to respond with this piece of text himself yep. in a few verses time. It's hard not to lie them next to each other and say, oh. Luke is retelling the story of Israel through the life of Jesus. For sure. Uh, absolutely. I think it's unmissable. And that, that's a beautiful demonstration of Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the purposes of God in and through Israel. And and I, I, I think what's really striking in looking at Deuteronomy 8 is to test what was in your heart. Mm. And my goodness, if, if we were to if we were to lean into that for Jesus, is that what's going on here? That even his heart is being tested? As to what's in it. Now, this is a hard one for us because we're, we know that Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. But mm-hmm. Luke has already introduced to us, he's hungry, that the humanity of Jesus is the big dominant idea that's being pushed as we move into yes. the wilderness experience. This idea that he's led, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, that he's doing things by the power of the Spirit is mm-hmm. is is building in the background for us and sometimes in the foreground. So you get this sense that we are, though he is fully God, where we're really gazing at the humanity of Jesus under scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And could it be that even his heart is being tested here within this moment? And, And of course, that causes us then to read the following temptation slightly differently. Mm, mm. So it's not really about bread, is it? It's not really about mm. kingdoms. It's not. It's, so there's something else going on here that, mm. at one level, is obvious, and you could read as obvious. And another level, I think, is deeper because there's a probing for something profound mm. and a probing for something fundamental and deep within the heart mm. of Jesus. The the sense almost of of covenant, I think, in in this is significant mm. where. So the Lord comes to Israel, and I, maybe I'm maybe I'm seeing parallels, John, where there aren't parallels. But it does strike me that the Israelites are known as the children of God, and here we have the Son of God. So there's yeah. there's potentially something going on there. But but when you when you make a covenant and a contract with somebody, as God has done with the people of Israel, you, mm. will you be my yeah. people? What is the contract worth? You or I might sign a contract for a car, right? So we'll, you'll go into an office one day and you'll say, yes, I'd like that car. And, and, and you agree a price with the seller and you sign a contract. And in my experience, you don't leave with the car that day. <laughs> you just sign mm. the contract. And then yeah. in a few days time, uh, you will come back to that uh, car dealership and, and you will take the car. There's one part of the contract is now provided. Mm. <laughs> And then, and then, generally speaking, at some point, whether you've worked out a finance agreement or something like that, you will then provide your side of the contract, which is here is the money from the car. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And and at one stage, there is a contract in paper that, in a weird sense, isn't worth anything except that it's just on paper. And it yeah. only gets proved when one half of the party does their deal and the other half of the party does their deal. And, and there's a sense of that covenantal relationship in God with Israel. It's like, well, I want to be your God. I'm over- offering you to be my God. But here's what I'm going to do. I'll look after you through mm-hmm. the desert. Here's what you're going to do. Keep my commandments and follow my ways. And I think that's what we mean when we're talking about test, right? So I think there's a sense sometimes that people almost hear the word of testing, God testing his people, God even testing us, almost as if God sat like some sort of sadistic teacher thinking, pop quiz, time for an exam. And I think our language of testing has become, our educational systems have have given us often quite negative attitudes towards testing because we all do tests and we think, well, what even was the point of that? Yep. I th- I don't think I'm uh, leading us astray by saying that the better way to think about testing in, in this particular situation is to think about it more in the lines of it's a, the proving or the yeah. establishment yeah. of a covenant um, th- that's going on in Israel. And now here we have, you are my son, Jesus. So yeah. now there's a sense of the establishment of us, of us as the observers of Luke's story, to see Jesus showing he really is God's son. Um, would you agree with me on that, John? Do you think I, that's I how would. to read testing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and also the parallel between Jesus and Israel on this is Israel is referred to as God's firstborn, even in the context of being delivered from Egypt. So, so you do get a sense of the Lord's, Yahweh's firstborn, is taken through a process of do you really commit yourself? Do you really mm. want this way, these ways, this command, this this covenant that I am setting before you? The benefits of the covenant are phenomenal, but there mm. is a requirement from you in terms of a surrender to that covenant. And just in the same way that they were then probed and tested, in mm-hmm. that willingness to accept the covenant, I think Jesus now is also being probed and tested. Mm-hmm. Is this what you want? Is this the way that you are going to go? And and of course, at the heart of it is this incredible, and we've already had the nuance of it, the incredible mm-hmm. relationship with the Father. This mm-hmm. is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. So we're hearing those words, not just as, a, as forgive my language, listeners, not just as a dad affirming his son, but we're Mm -hmm. hearing that language covenantally. We're hearing that language in the sense of of the father establishing formally this incredible relationship with Jesus and Jesus then surrendering to the Mm -hmm. requirements and the responsibilities of that agreement. And, Mm -hmm. And he is now under test as to whether he will stick with that way of living or seek some other way of living and some other sort of shortcut to the purpose or the promise. I think that's so helpful for us to kind of keep that in mind as to, there's so many layers as to what's going on here, aren't there? Um, Even like here's a, in in Justo Gonzalez's Luke commentary, he throws he throws another layer uh, onto it wherein he, and, and I, I, I love this. So we've got these layers of what's happening in this story. And he points out that, that each of the temptations that Jesus faces also are temptations that you can see. They parallel the temptations that the devil used 
to lead Adam and then Israel into sin. And so each of them is about Jesus' faithfulness to his purpose and calling to the Father. But it's also somehow representing the correcting of the human mm-hmm. story. We're the first Adam, to use very Paul line language, yep. the first Adam gets it wrong. So Gonzalez says this, he says, just as Adam was tempted, so must Jesus be tempted. But while Adam succumbed to temptation, Jesus will stand firm. In the first round of the conflict, the devil won, but now the devil will be thoroughly defeated by the work of Jesus, and, mm. uh, which mm. I think is a great quote. I, I love that. But, yeah. But, yeah. but I mean, I really resonate with that idea of that, just to add another layer to what's going on in this story, that Jesus is 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 redoing the human problem. That it's now yeah. the, the, the devil comes to meet another human. <laughs> to the yep. first human, it's like, hey, do you want, why don't you eat this? God, did God really say you couldn't eat this? Uh, why don't you eat yes. this? Now we get the second temptation come. Sorry, the second encounter between human and the devil yes. with a very different outcome, but a very similar pattern. I I, yes. I I find that really exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, the, there is Adam. That when when our first parents fell, they they were they were in that respect perfect. They mm. they were pre sin. There was no. There was no sin within them, and yet they were tested in such a way that they succumbed and gave in, and followed that path. and And I think that's absolutely there that that idea of the first Adam and the last Adam, and Jesus mm. being able to push through where the first Adam failed. Mm. Um, but the similarities in the approach, the similarities in the principles, and the similarities in the ideas are striking. They're, they're again, they stretch thousands of years, and yet they are absolutely, totally nuanced there. And and so you get this this beautiful layer that where Adam failed, Jesus is now stepping up to the plate. What's he going to do? Where Israel stumbled, Jesus now, as God's begotten son, mm-hmm. steps into the same arena of testing and is is has on his shoulders, as it were, the, the weight of all humanity in seeking mm-hmm. to in seeking to fulfill the purpose of God. So I think those nuances are there, absolutely. And and just Gonzalez in his commentary just agrees with what you're saying there, because and what I love about it is when you zoom out then. He he said he says this. Let me just quote him because I think he's he's fantastic. The temptation of Jesus is not just one more attempt by the devil to hinder or undo God's work. It's an integral part of the mission of Jesus, who is yeah. to confront and destroy the powers of evil. So, with what you've said just there, I think that aligns with that. This is it's not like, ah, the devil's just doing what the devil does. There's a significance here that this is Adam. The return, you know, this Adam part yeah. to the sequel, yeah. and and like you say, the first, the last. I, I think it's there's just just a lot of theological weight hanging on this on this little passage as to what's happening in cosmic history, even in sense mm. of God's God's plans for the world. Jesus um, is confronted by the devil, or is the devil confronted by Jesus? You know, it's uh-huh. the, the, you know. The, the the first humans hit the wall that was the devil. Uh, this time around, it feels a little more like the devil hits the wall that is Jesus. And of course, by the end of Luke's story, we have the cross and the resurrection, and we know what that signifies for sin and death. So mm. it's it's 
it's it's theologically it's the sort of area where if you're in that space it's like being in the middle of the storm of Luke's theology isn't it all your yeah. all your hair is standing on end and it's it's exciting yeah for sure and and again it helps us to to understand that at a beautiful and glorious level there is a very personal human application to this this passage that we're about to delve into and and discover as I am tempted so so the Lord can help me as I am tested so so there's that there's that beautiful layer there but but as followers of Jesus we're being called to step out and see there is something massive significant huge that is happening Mm. here this is this is not just another thing this is a necessary thing. This is mm. um, absolutely essential in the ministry of Jesus. If he is ultimately to become the savior of the world, he must pass the test that Adam mm-hmm. failed. Mm-hmm. He must pass the test that Israel failed. He must pass the test that 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 tests what is in his heart, mm-hmm. so that he has fully and completely embraced the way of the Father to save the world. And and I think that's that's pulling those threads together. That the test here is not just about, well, will he eat bread or not? That's really not what it's about. <laughs> it's about it's about will he embrace the heart of the Father and do what the Father wants above all, mm. whatever that looks like for him in the context of of that. And and I love that that there's a sense in which he can sympathize with us with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way like we have. But if we only see the temptation of Jesus as, well, Jesus now can be my great high priest and sympathize with me because he's been through all of that. If we mm-hmm. only leave it at that level, then then we're not going far enough. We, we've got now a significant, if you like, salvation history type mm-hmm. level that's saying Jesus has to pass this test if the world is to be saved. I, I love that, John. That's and and as always, it just reminds me of why it's why we have to slow down and not read quickly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Think about what what weight is hanging on the things that we're we're saying, and it almost it it. I think the way that you've set that up there leads us in then to actually just look briefly at the way not exactly the first temptation but the way that the devil mm. opens that first temptation so yeah. there's this there's this trajectory of the spirit the spirit is coming down upon jesus the spirit is leading jesus into the wilderness the spirit is jesus is full of the spirit in fact even i was looking <laughs> i should have maybe read beyond verse 13 that at the end of the temptation in verse 14 jesus returns to galilee filled with the power of the spirit and this report yeah. about him goes out there and of course he's going to walk into the the synagogue in nazareth and say the spirit of the lord is upon me so so this sense of of what's going on there but all of this combines that when the spirit of the lord comes upon jesus at his baptism we get this you are my son so that parallel has been drawn between the son of god children of israel but you are my son so it's really significant that the devil opens this question with if Mm. you are the son of god Again, alluding back to what I said in our previous episode, he's the son of God genealogically. He's the son of God through the Holy Spirit's confirmation and power. I mean, this is like straight out of the playbook of temptation. It's established, you are God's son. And the devil opens with, 
if you are God's son, then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a challenge, isn't it? Well, it is, and it's it's a challenge that is striking at the very core of his identity, isn't it? So, mm. it's this is not just about if you're hungry or what you want. This is about who you actually are in relation to the Father. So the Father has established, you are my son. And of course, in between that, with we, we've alluded to, you know, Dr. Luke says beautifully, he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. So you get mm. that lovely little sort of almost tabloid type feel to that. That yes. sort of, oh, there was, there was a bit of a rumor and question mark about his identity. So his identity is affirmed by the Father at the baptism. His, his identity is questioned by humans. Well, there was a bit of a rumor, but here his identity is full on challenged. And this is an affront to who he is. And, and I think there's a powerful idea here, David, that if if the enemy of our souls, if the adversary, let's give him one of his Tanakh titles, if the adversary can separate us from our God-shaped identity, then I think he also creates a means to confuse us on our God-called purpose and destiny. Mm -hmm. So the trajectory that Jesus is on is now firmly established. You're my son. I love you. I'm well pleased. Holy Spirit's on him and the Holy Spirit now leads him. We are on this is on. And the first thing that gets challenged is the very first word of the father. So the I first know. recorded word of the yeah. father is, you are my son. The first recorded word of the devil in the gospel of Luke is, if you are the son. And again, our listeners will hear the unbelievable parallel to Genesis of, mm. has God said? Did God really say? When the serpent comes to, to the woman, has God really said? And she responds, yes, God did say. And there's this now wrestling over the word of the Lord that defines our first parents, the word of the Lord that defines who they are, and the word of the Father that has defined Jesus. Jesus is defined by the word of God, not by his own testimony, but by the word of the Father, that he mm. is the Son. And so when the devil says, if you are the Son, He's not only challenging the identity of Jesus, but he is challenging the authority of the word of the Father that has established mm. and affirmed that identity. So if Jesus succumbs to this, if he starts to play the game based on, well, am I the son of God or not? If he starts to play that game, then he plays in to the very agenda that I think undid our first parents. Because, mm -hmm. because when when the when the when the serpent says to Eve, to the woman, did God say? She says, yes, God did say. And then he says, but yes, God knows that if you eat of this, you will be like him and you will know good from evil. Uh, and there is again a, in the garden, a subtle undermining of the God established authority because the first man, the first woman were already made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And yet the enemy says, you will be like God. Now, I know he's the inference there, you'll be like God because God knows good from evil and you'll be like that. But they were already like God. And so he was encouraging them to reach out for something they didn't need in order to become someone they already were. Mm -hmm. They already were like God. 
they didn't need this fruit. When we see then, and, and says it says powerfully in the Genesis text, when her eyes were open and she saw that the fruit was good for, then, then mm. she succumbed. So something in that temptation, that test in the garden, caused her to see mm. in a way that enabled her to abandon her God-given identity in the Word of God and move towards that sin. And I think... I can't help but feel that in this test, this is this is an important important prefix to the test mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. mustn't rush past if you are the Son of God. I think there's a questioning of the word of the Father, and yes. with that, the question of the identity of the Son, which are inextricably linked to what's about to happen. And, and it is just so interesting, again, at how Luke is riffing off Scripture in that. And, and it just it's not as easily noticeable for those of us that read differently now, but it is worth mentioning, just to double down on what you've said, the very first thing that God directly says to the man mm. is this command, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of it. So the first thing God says to Adam is here's, here's, here's something about you. And that's the first thing that the devil tempts Adam and and Eve with. The first thing that God says to to Jesus in Luke's gospel, you're my son, the very first thing. So there's a playbook that Luke is showing us of of how evil works at some level. But, and and, and like you say, these questions about, I I love the way you phrased it about the the, the question about identity and and, and that's, yeah, just really powerful way of thinking about how these sort of things these sort of things works and how lies work really even in that process about how, and, and even how we can do that with scripture. We can take the words of scripture and adjust them and move them. I mean, and we're, and we're going to see that as we talk through overcoming episodes, how the devil does that to Jesus, attempting to speak. To, to adjust scripture. And I find that's quite fascinating, John, that the Lord speaks to Adam and the devil is back to them saying, well, did he really say it like this? Or what if he said it like that? And, and actually at some level, is that not the challenge of anybody who would desire to be faithful to God? Mm-hmm. Is that we are constantly faced with the opportunity to tweak and adjust God's words to 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 make them suit us a little bit better. <laughs> and, and and the devil comes to Jesus and says, Well, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Because it feels like it feels like you could do that. And 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 we yeah. and we find that maybe maybe I don't need to treat this person with the respect that they need. Maybe I don't need to act in this particular way. Because I think I can read that particular verse of the Bible to support my particular my particular behavior. So you see this is the human story at some level, isn't it? It's completely, completely. You know. And and I think it's what's really powerful is that Genesis and Israel and now Jesus show us this pattern that mm-hmm. what the father, let's use that language, what the father wants from us is not just what he wants. It's not just based in action. It's based in identity. It's based in the fact that when he makes covenant with us, when he created our first parents, when he speaks over Jesus, this is about the relationship he has Mm -hmm. with the people in question. Adam, uh, Eve, they were literally the first children of the father in, in that human sense. Israel is his firstborn. Jesus, you are my son. Mm. So, so you've got this. 
we, we, we just tend to think of the words of the Father to us being about what he wants us to do. But of course, mm-hmm. what he wants us to do is absolutely embedded in who he wants us to be and who we are in him. And actually, it's our doing for him must come out of our understanding who we are in him and mm-hmm. and and that relationship uh, that we have with him when when you know when the prophets came along they called Israel back to who she was who who God had made her to be that God he, they, they wanted Israel to return not just to keeping the law but understanding that they had a unique relationship with this God. And of course, what the enemy of our souls is after in the Garden of Eden is he wants to fracture that unique relationship. He wants to destroy it because he himself, if we are to follow the biblical trajectory, he himself has had that relationship. He was one of, we we might want to refer to him as that bright and morning star, that as Isaiah refers to him. I know there's a reference there to the king of Babylon, but there is a nuance into the fall of Lucifer himself. Mm. This sense of, I will arise, I will be, I will take the throne of the Most High God. In other words, even the fall of Lucifer, as recorded potentially for us, if you read it, that if you're prepared to read it that way in Isaiah 14, Mm. even the fall of Lucifer points to the idea that he gets confused about his own identity. Mm. He tries to become something he is not, and he forgets who he is in relationship to the creator God. I will arise and take the throne, he says in Isaiah 14. So so when we forget, or when we are dislodged, or when we are confused about who we are in God, I think then that makes us profoundly vulnerable to succumbing to the tests that are Mm. before us. And our first parents... I think they succumb to that. I think Israel struggles with that. And I think now, Jesus, if you are the son of God, why begin with that? Because that is the very heart of both the the father's words and his identity, which is crucial to the purpose for which he's about to fulfill. So I think the two things of what we're called to do and who we are are inextricably linked in a biblical text. And I think the enemy knows that, that the the adversary knows that. The separation of identity and destiny, separation of identity and purpose, is at the core of his strategy to destroy God's Mm. purpose in us as humans, I think, and through us as Mm. humans. I don't know if that makes sense, but I I think that's how I'm reading it, David. I'm reflecting, just as you're saying that, on Luke as a student of Paul and I was thinking about Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is almost a pushing forward into the church of everything you've just said. So the question of identity amongst Adam and Eve, the question is its challenge to Jesus. If if you were to take as your homework to go and read the book of Ephesians, what I think is fascinating about Ephesians is it's your over halfway through the book of Ephesians before Paul tells you to do anything. There's, there's there's no imperatives of action, but he spends the first three chapters just speaking to who God is, to who you are, to what God's done in us. And and you, you're reading this book going, I, I thought Paul was the one that was constantly telling us what to do. And here he is just telling us who we are. We are. And I think it speaks to that same principle of first, you have to establish that because that's going to frame the things that you're going 
that you're going to do. And so perhaps we even see this as to how deeply rooted this idea is in Scripture, that God shapes us, calls us, identifies us, be we Adam and Eve, people of Israel, Jesus, the expanse of the church. This is who you are, and that's the place from where you do Mm -hmm. everything. And if you get that back to front... And you try and do things. And we're going to see that in the temptation. The devil's like, well, here's the things that you're here to do. I'll just give them to you. I'll just give them to you. But you have to sacrifice your identity. And and Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, and unlike most of us, <laughs> holds the line and understands that his identity and who he is in God is is the thing that has to define how he does everything else. Come on. So good.